What I found is like the greatest use of my time is in being able to think about the business and see things not from being within the business, but sort of observing the business. And when I can do that, I can help things grow, fix areas that are lagging a little bit, and that helps move the whole company forward. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. That's me, Yona Weiss, your host, and I'm here with Jason Stubblefield, excited to talk to him today about real estate investing, which is pretty much something we talk about every week on the podcast. So just get a different perspective. And Jason's been in the business for quite a while and excited to hear his perspective. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing great, Yona. Excited to have this conversation with you. Glad to be here. It's amazing to have me on the show. I think we connected years and years ago. I mean, I think through Bigger Pockets originally. And, you know, it's just amazing to see how, you know, you've grown, you continue investing. And it's just a testament to when you find your niche and you just double down and keep doing it day after day, week after week, you grow leaps and bounds when you look back, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. Likewise, I know it's the same things about you, you know, consistent growth, consistency, and you showing up at, at events and really becoming a thought leader in this space, man. So appreciate you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. And for our listeners who don't know who you are, give us a little background, you know, where you got started and, and how you got involved in real estate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So name's Jason Stubblefields, born in Tennessee, lower income family, really just started trying to work my way up. So I joined the military like right out of high school. I got a degree in software development. And then I sort of got serious about life. And I'm like, well, how am I going to stop working. That's probably what leads a lot of people to listen to podcasts like this. But I started reading, learned about real estate, went into single family, saw that it was going to take a extraordinarily long time for me to accomplish my goals. And then I sort of sat still for a minute and didn't know what to do. So after a while of research, it led me into multifamily. And I started that back in 20, 2015. And I've been on that journey ever since. That's awesome. Now, when you were in the military, did you get involved in the investing side at all with that, with the VA loan or anything like that? Not at all. I mean, I did utilize the VA loan, but it wasn't for, well, I did use it for investment purposes when I first got started. The first home I, I bought in the single family wasn't for me, but something where I wanted to, to house hack and rent out the rooms. So yeah, it was it was helpful. Awesome. So what was it for you that, that kind of pushed you into, into real estate? More than anything else. I mean, you met, you mentioned you were doing the single family and they kind of just sat still and and observed and learned. And I'm sure, you know, did you have any, was it like podcasts you came across? Or was it something that kind of drove you? Or how did you how did you know that that was the right path to take? Yeah, I think at that at that point I had done enough in single family to sort of understand what it was going to take. And I started a family. So I, mm. I started having I got married, I had kids, and and suddenly 20% down payment became a challenge for me. And I wasn't immersed like in into the to the business. So I didn't know what to do. I was like, I don't have the money right now. And I ended up just doing nothing. So fast forward from that point, about Three years later, I'm now like, hey, I need to get into this real estate thing again, but it's a different market. And now I'm also more cognizant of my time. 
And that's when I started analyzing how long is a single family thing going to take? Right. And and that's when it, it really got got interesting. All right. When you talk about you know multifamily, obviously for a lot of people, it's just realizing mm-hmm. how you can grow when you scale, when you when you're dealing with multiple doors instead of one door per property, it's just easier. I mean, is that yep. are you invested in tell me a little bit about that, like in terms of the markets and the types of properties that you look for? Yeah. So when I first got started, I was really just looking for anything multifamily to get my foot in the door. Uh, I found that. And then I went into the value add units, really as many as I could buy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so first I just bought, I started with a 34 unit apartment complex and that was my first deal. And I did that by myself with no investors. Oh, and, wow. it, and I learned quite a bit. From there, I had all my money tied up in that project and was sitting on my hands. And I went from there into syndication. So then I started the syndication model and was looking in the Southeast. So we focused in Tennessee, Georgia, had some assets in Texas and Kentucky. But more recently, we even niched down a little bit more and we've gone into the affordable housing space within the markets of Tennessee and Georgia. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a great space to be in, especially you involved in any development projects with that or or just the acquisition like value add for the formula? Yeah. So the focus right now, ideally, we do want to get to a ground up developments at some point. But right now, we're focused on the preservation of affordable housing with existing units. And we come in and try to keep them, keep the rents affordable for tenants long term. For sure. So you mentioned that you had a, a degree in computer science. Did I hear that right? That is correct. <laughs> I'm just curious because I always love to kind of dig in and see, you know, people study something and then go into a different field, you know, entirely seemingly. But do you find any, you know, benefit what you do now in terms of the business you run? Has that been able to help you in any way? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I'm not like a software tech guy at all, really. I was just in college. I was like, what's going to pay me some money if I actually <laughs> learn this skill? And it was computer science. And I was like, okay, it just worked out. But what I did is I learned another way of thinking, right? And so everything in computer science is is based off modules and compartmentalizing everything. And so Mm. I take that in the business and I I still sort of think through that in that method strategically, like how can I create this little system that will work on its own and then I can move on to something else. And that's basically what building businesses is all about, creating systems and leveraging your time and being efficient. That's so true. I mean, uh, that really sums up <laughs> what business is all about, right? Having systems, leveraging your time and leveraging other people, really, once you realize the value of your own time. Yeah. I, think, I think we all struggle with that in a way because that's the key to scale. I mean, I think that's what's keeping the majority of people back is when they realize that, you know, as, as most entrepreneurs, and like you said, you were dealing that 134 unit all by yourself. I mean, I'm sure you had people working alongside you in terms of maintenance and, you know, property manager, or whatever, but you still had everything tied up there. It's only when you move to the syndication model and now you have partners and you have investors, you have utilizing other people's capital, other people's money. That's when you can really grow. Yes. Yeah. And quality of life is so much better when you got a team and it's not all you. <laughs> what do you mean by that? How has that changed the quality of life for you? Well, the first time, so the first deal I was the only investor in. The second time I said, all right, I'm going to syndicate a deal. And I went at it all by myself. I, I found the deal. I underwrote it. I raised the capital. I did the due diligence. I was the asset manager. And it was one of the more stressful parts of my life because I'm doing that while still working as a, a software developer. And it was strenuous, you know, but having a team in place and being able to delegate some of those 
tasks allow you to be just as efficient while still having a quality of life. That's what I meant by that. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no questions asked. So what are you focused on now more? I mean, now that you do have a team, like what of all those things that you mentioned before that you were all doing by yourself, is there any one area that you prefer to focus on more than another? Yeah, it's really trying to do less, right? To do as little as possible. And that may sound a little <laughs> arrogant, but no, I can what, I found is, <laughs> what I found is like the greatest use of my time is in being able to think about the business and see things not from being within the business, but sort of observing the business. And when I can do that, I can help things grow, fix areas that are lagging a little bit, and that helps move the whole company forward. Makes sense. It's like thinking on the business and not in the business, right? Working on the business, not in the business. I think it's a big, uh, from the e-myth, that was a big principle that brought out from that book. That part, exactly, yep. 100%. So, I mean, where do you see yourself moving forward? I mean, obviously, you talked about affordable housing, talked about multifamily, and you know, potentially going into development. Are there any other areas you know, of real estate that you've looked into? Because obviously, it's a trying market right now. It's kind of hard to find good deals. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of people in the space right now are looking for that, maybe shifting the shifting of gears or a different asset class. And I've really found a home in in affordable housing because it's such a need and Mm. it's such a very nuanced type of asset class that not a lot of people are privy of. So with that being said, it allows me to continue to do it. And I, I foresee myself doing that long term. Gotcha. I mean, there are obviously, there, especially in the Southeast, I mean, there's a lot of affordable housing needs, like you said. And unfortunately, there's not enough housing out there. I mean, I know a lot of people are moving into thinking about, you know, maybe mobile home parks or, you know, mobile home communities as an option or, or an alternative to affordable housing. But, yep. you know, but multifamily can still be there. I mean, there are plenty of properties out there. They just need to be, you know, made more fit to live in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a huge need. It's a national crisis, really, with just the amount of affordability. So we actually need more people, more new construction, more preservation deals right there. And so I feel like not only can we we do well, but we can also do good at the same time. Right. And I think that seeing, seeing it long term is hopefully that we could solve a problem and also be able to grow our business simultaneously. That's really what it's all about, right? I mean, if you can, obviously you can make money. That's a business, right? Real estate is not a, an altruistic, you know, it, it is a business. It's not a charity, yeah. but at the same time, you can make it a win-win. You can make, you know, beautiful places, beautiful, beautiful communities for people to live in, safe, beautiful communities, I should say, for people to live in and be proud to live there. I think there's something about being proud of, of where you live, you know, of your home and yeah. especially if it becomes a community. I'd love to hear if you have any like examples of of that, like what you do in terms of the asset management or in terms of the community building within your properties, if there's any type of programs that you do or any type of services you provide on top of just, you know, simply, okay, you guys, you're my tenants, we'll collect rent. Uh, yeah. The good thing, especially in the affordable housing space, there's a lot of nonprofits. And so our company isn't big enough yet to bring in some in-house sort of community development person. We we don't have that. But what we do do is look for 
nonprofits that have programs and we sort of leverage our ability as asset owners or property owners to say, hey, you can use our facility to conduct your program here. And we found that to be a good way to sort of leverage and provide extra services to our tenants. And that's that's worked out quite nice. Yeah, I mean, there are tons of nonprofits. I think it's a great thing to do, especially in the community. Look and see what's available, what's around. There are plenty of you know, resources, whether government funded or you know just nonprofits, non government organizations that can help and provide services to the community. You know, I've heard of a lot of property owners making events and making it you know just a safer place to live by making it more of a community. Like people get to know each other a little better and feel more safe that way. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I once heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a difference between when you're talking about like Section 8 tenants, where there's actually the government is footing the bill or the majority of the bill of the rent. Are those the types of, you know, properties that you own? Or is there something else when you're talking about affordable housing? Is it specifically when we're talking about Section 8, you know, government subsidized housing? Or is there something else to that? Yeah. So affordable housing is actually a pretty large umbrella. Right. And I think the technical def- definition is based off area median income. So if you're making, call it 80% or lower of the area median income, then affordable housing is defined as sort of 30% of your income. And what happens is that because we have market competition, right? Right. You're driving you up have, the rents. Exactly. So people are paying, you know, 40 and in some instances, 50 percent of their income just to afford a roof over their heads. And so in affordable housing, it's a large umbrella where we focus at is on the low income housing tax credit perspective of that. And so that's like a private public partnership where we get some equity from the government. And in return, we keep rents at a level that is affordable for that tenant base. And so there's income restrictions that go along with that. Now, there are also other subsidies that go along with that. So where you talk about project-based vouchers or Section 8 or other people who get other subsidies, tenants that are getting other subsidies, that's sort of included, but it's not our focus, right? We sort of focus on the income restrictions. So these are for working people, right? So think about hostesses at restaurants or a school teacher, someone who's working and is employed, but they necessarily don't have $2,000 or $2,500 a month to pay for rent. And so what we do is provide them stable, safe, affordable housing without having to charge a a whole lot of money. Gotcha. Can you explain, maybe our listeners aren't so familiar with this low-income housing tax credits. I mean, you mentioned you you kind of couch it as the government's providing or the private, you know, public providing some sort of equity to you as the owners. How does that actually, you know, break down in terms of numbers? If you can give me like an example. Yeah, yeah. That is a loaded question, but (laughs) roughly you'll have a loan on the property just like any other property, right? So we'll get a loan and typically in affordable deals, everyone's trying to assist, right? So we can get better leverage where mm-hmm. normally we'll get 75 to 80% leverage or we'll call it 70 to 80% leverage. Right? With affordable, we can get 80%. Some some instances we can get 85 or 90% leverage. So it's, it's beneficial there. Then when it comes to the equity piece, you have tax credits. And what that is, is the government will allow some corporation or entity, somebody who's, who has a lot of capital to save on taxes, if they will put that money into 
affordable housing. So that's where the equity piece comes in. So think about Wells Fargo or a Bank of America or even like Amazon, who's now getting into that space as well, right? So they have a lot of tax liability and they'll say, all right, we'll contribute this money to this government program. For that, we will receive a tax break on the back end. And that's how deals are sort of put together because you have equity that isn't necessarily concerned as much about getting yield on their money as they are about getting tax breaks. Interesting. So Amazon will come in into your deal, for example, with a certain amount of capital as an equity piece in the deal in return for a certain percentage, probably a much lower percentage of yield which is much, much lower when we're talking about the capital stack. We're talking about, you know, regular general equity that you may be having to provide, you know, six or seven or eight percent preferred returns to your investors. Whereas Amazon, you may be on, you know, paying two or three percent probably. Is that accurate? Not even. I mean, there is an equity split, but it's usually on like a 90-10. And that's this is where you get into the tax law and all of that, how it's structured. But they're not really cons- they're not looking for cash flow. So the return mm-hmm. on that investment isn't necessarily the driving factor behind them. It's right. more of the tax credits the tax and tax credits. benefits, the cost seg study, as you're very familiar with, right? And all of that that goes along with it that allows it to be an attractive investment for them. Interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not even, they're not even looking for a return necessarily. They're just looking for the, you know, the tax credits and you as the investor benefit from having some more capital to go into funding the deal. Yes. That's the ultimate goal. Now, before you get to that, it's a bunch of government loopholes to sort of jump through. It's working with the government. So it is a lot of brain damage and then the (laughs) tax laws around it. It's tax law. You know, if you're familiar with that, and you know, it's never straightforward. And we just have to go hire lawyers to be like, what does this mean? How is it interpreted? And how do we not get ourselves into trouble? Mm-hmm. But once you understand that it is lucrative and you see how that works, the problem is trying to do that yourself, which I tried to do for years. It becomes very challenging to have an investor invest into a property to keep those rents low and then be able to provide a decent return for them. Mm -hmm. So the way we bridge the two is we sort of do that in an area, so this unique area before we get the tax credits. So before we get tax credits, we actually buy it as a market rate deal. Mm -hmm. That gives us ownership and control, and it'll take maybe a one to three year period before we actually go get the tax credits. And then we swap out equity partners as as the way that. Oh, wow. So you actually like buy out the investors similar to like a refinance, essentially. Sort of. Yes. Yeah. So we buy it initially. So after it's somebody puts a tax credit market on Mm -hmm. a tax credit property on the market, you can just buy it. There's some government approvals right. that go along with it, but we buy it and then we we hold it for a period. And then we ideally go in and work with the government on the partnership to keep it low income for a long period of time. That's awesome. That's amazing. Wow. So there's so much to it. It's incredible that when you get into real estate, you know, you just niche down, niche down, niche down to you find your space. And there's so many different rules and laws that play, but you can find what works for you. And that's, you know, if you can make that work, I know there, there's challenges and there are limitations, but if you can make it work and you know, more power to you, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I want to transition now to what we call the final four, Jason. These are four questions I ask all my guests. First question to you, what's the worst job that you ever had? Hauling hay. <laughs> I did that when I was about maybe 14 years old and I was in Tennessee and it was extremely hot, man. And, and job I don't want to do again. Wow. Just hauling hay. 
That's it, man. Barrels <laughs> of hay. We was out there sun up to evening time and you just putting haze on a truck and getting it hauled off. Wow. It was definitely on the, the manual labor. <laughs> That's one thing you no one, if you've done it once, you, you don't want to do it again, probably for most people. Yep. I would think they'd have like nowadays machinery doing most of that, but you know, I've probably well, this was a while ago. You know, <laughs> it was a while ago. I don't see it happening that much, but I did it and never again if I could avoid it. Well, good for you. Second question What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah, I would say uh, $100 million offers. It's a book on, on marketing and the paradigm shift is really just being able to understand that if you make an offer good enough, that mm. it could be hard enough to refuse. And what I really found out is that even though this is apartment investing, it's very much about sales and marketing at the end of the day. Mm. And so taking a step out of the business has allowed me to really see that. And, I, and that's a book that I think is a good shift in understanding the, the way to think about that. Awesome. $100 million offer. Is that from Alex Hormazi? Is that who the author is? Yeah. Hormazi. Yep. Hormazi. Yeah. I've seen him around a lot lately. He's become a lot more active on the social media past year or so. And I've seen a lot of his content out there. So I've definitely come across the book. Haven't read it yet. So I'm putting it on the book list and we'll put it in the show notes for anyone else who wants to check that out. Third question, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? I would love to be able to speak Spanish fluently. Like I know a little bit, but it's terrible, right? But just being able to have that as a skill is something I keep on putting on my back burner, but maybe I'll get there one of these days. Go for it. Pick up an online course and or just you know go down to South America or Central America, spend some time. Yeah, just, just get it done. That's all you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. No, it is a lot better. Like when I do tour countries, like if I find myself using words, I'm like, I don't even know I knew that word. But then it's like, you know, a year before I'm back in another Spanish-speaking country. Right. And like I really should know, I should know more. It's useful. It's a very useful in America, you know, to have that. Growing up in Southern California, I definitely, it was very useful. I took three years of Spanish in high school and, you know, could speak pretty well. Definitely could understand a lot, especially as on the soccer field, because uh, I think I was one of like a couple people in my high school that didn't speak Spanish fluently on the soccer team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you needed to learn. You needed to know, know the words, but I've since forgotten most of it. So there you go. Fourth and final question. What does success mean to you? Yes. Yeah, su- success to me means bringing the things that are inside of you out. Right. So I, I feel like everybody has, they have talents, they have mm-hmm. assignments in their life. And if you can bring that out and do it and still maintain a sense of life and work balance, right. Then I feel like you are successful. So it doesn't necessarily have a monetary amount of digits associated with it. But as long as you can do that, I feel like you've been a success. 100%. That's awesome. That's a great perspective. Appreciate that, Jason. And last and finally, where can our listeners find you or uh, reach out to you if they want to? Yeah. If you go to jasonstubblefield.com, that's my website. And that's got every place you want to reach me at. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to put that in the show notes as well. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time today and spending it with us. Thank you, Yona. It's been fun. Likewise. And to our listeners, thank you guys for joining once again, all the way till the end. I appreciate you guys. And remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast, what that does is it basically tells the platforms that this 
podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating or review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.